way through 1 Corinthians. We'll finish up the end of this month. And then in August, we've got a different focus and um, move into the fall. But uh, this week, as we continue this series, if you want to turn, if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, we're 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so Pastor Luke preached the last couple of weekends, chapter 10 and 11. And uh, just a reminder that we're working our way through 1 Corinthians because it really is applicable to us. These are letters written in the first 100 years, okay, uh, of um, after Jesus' life and death. And so, um, yes, these were ancient peoples in a different time. And yet it's amazing how this book of Corinthians written to this group of people who lived in an ancient Roman city, how we can relate to them. And so a lot of leaders over the years, and myself included, have thought uh, to, our, uh, to myself, and I've heard this from other leaders, if there's one letter in the New Testament that we as American Christians in the church in America can relate to, it's 1 Corinthians. Because the church in Corinth and the city of Corinth and the culture there um, look so much like the culture we live in. And their issues, in a lot of ways, are the same issues we struggle with. And so it's good to get into it and, and uh, learn from it and be encouraged. And hopefully you are, hopefully being challenged. Um, each week, I kind of try to give a big idea for the message. And this chapter, the big idea is you are gifted to participate. You're gifted to participate. When I was a kid... Um, from the time I was uh, first grade through about seventh grade, my family lived in a little town in Indiana. It's called Winona Lake. And uh, we were there because my dad was going to seminary. There's a seminary school there called Grace Theological Seminary. And he was in that school preparing for uh, ministry. And so uh, my childhood, you know, kind of that chunk of it was all spent in that place. And it was a great place to grow up. Small town, Bible Belt, um, just a great place. And we lived in... Uh, we lived in this little community of Winona Lake, and Winona Lake is named Winona Lake because there's a lake there, right? And it's a big part of the community. It's a big lake for that area. And so we lived actually on a dead-end street called Boys City Drive, and it was pretty close to the lake. In fact, the little house we lived in was kind of really a cottage. It was more of a summer home, but um, my parents, given the financial situation and everything, that's what they could do. And so we got this little cottage, and they turned a one-bedroom uh, little cottage into two bedrooms by converting a little porch into a bedroom for my brother and I. We had bunk beds there, and so we thought it was great. Um, Again, we lived on dead end, so we could hang out all day, um, go ride our bikes and do all the things that you hear of. We were outside all day, but um, it was great. Parents even let us go down to the lake by ourselves. Not sure I ever asked, but I did it. Um, but anyway, um, I know we'd never do that today, but I survived it and uh, it was fun. And so um, while we were there, uh, you know, I was in that age where I started watching what my dad was doing and I wanted to do what he was doing. And there was a number of things like that. And one thing I can remember was uh, that we had in this little house, we had a big willow tree in the front yard. And so, um, and my brother and I, along with our neighbors, had worn a permanent kickball, baseball diamond in the front yard. I mean, it was worn into the grass. So it wasn't a great uh, situation, but I still, my dad still had a lawnmower and I watched him mow the lawn. And I remember at some point thinking, I want to do that. And so I started asking my dad, dad, let me mow the lawn. Let me do it. I can do it. I'm big enough. You know, all those things. And, uh, and so my dad, uh, I remember, I don't remember how old I was when I started asking, but I remember him saying this to me, John, you got to wait till you're 10 to mow the lawn. So I was a little disappointed by that, of course, but I at least knew that uh, there was a point in time where I would be able to do this. And so uh, I remember when I turned 10, at some point, 
that summer, my dad let me start mowing the lawn. He gave me some instructions and, and everything. Um, what I didn't know about my dad is that one of the things he cared about a lot was how the lawn looked. I didn't know that. I was 10. No idea. Now, we had worn. <laughs> the front yard was a mess. But, but there was still a backyard, and he still cared about it. Now, I learned this as he grew older, and as I grew older, he had immaculate lawns a lot of time, most of his life. But in this case, I'm the oldest child. Um, I'm the first one turning 10. And for him to turn over the reins of mowing the lawn, I don't think was probably an easy thing for him. Um, and yet, he did it. He allowed me, his son, to participate, right? To help do the work. You know, um, when we trust in Christ, we put our faith in him, uh, we hear the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that, that Jesus, the son of God, came to earth. He walked among us. He lived among us. He showed us who God is. He was God. He is God. But as he walked the earth, he was all God and all man. And he walked among us, right? And so he's revealing to us who God is. He's showing us who God is. And the kind of work that God does is the work that Jesus did. And so when we put our trust in him, when we say, I believe that Jesus was and is God, right? That he really did die. That he was buried that he rose again on the third day. And I put my trust in him that his death was uh, able to pay for my sin. And I put my trust in him. The Bible says I move from being dead spiritually, being headed for judgment spiritually. I move from death to life. And so I become alive and I become a new creation. And all of a sudden I can begin to be the person that God created me to be. And that what that means in part is that I, got, I get to start participating or working with God in what he's doing. I get to be a part of that. The Bible tells us that God were to view him as our heavenly father. And so just like I wanted to be like my dad, maybe uh, you wanted to be like your dad or your mom, that you were emulating that leadership level, that we're naturally do the same thing with God. And that he has created a path and a process in a way for us to get involved and participate with him. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians, what we're going to see is that this church in Corinth um, was struggling a little bit with this process. They were struggling and they were having some difficulties. But what Paul's going to do is reinforce that reality that they were designed and intended to participate with God. And so the first thing he's going to present to them is that, they, um, is that uh, God himself is a part of the process. When we trust in Christ, one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. If you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. And one of the things he does is that he equips you. He equips you. The Holy Spirit equips you, right, to serve and to do God's work. Let's start reading 1 Corinthians 12 in verse 1. Follow along as I read. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Important to note, just kind of a, a point of uh, uh, awareness, is that they had written a letter to him with a bunch of questions, right? 
And so he's responding, and this is one of the questions they had sent him. And so we know, based on his words here, that there's some confusion about it, where they were getting confused, misunderstanding. And so he first addresses their misunderstanding regarding how this happens. And so verse 2, he says, You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So as pagans, they worshiped false gods. They worshiped gods that weren't real, that were made by human hands. And so they were swept along in that and they were not gods that could speak to them, right? They weren't gods that could uh, give them a message or interact with them. They were speechless. They weren't real. But still, that's how they had worshiped. And so their understanding of spiritual things had come from this kind of worship. So it's all wrong. And so he's like, we got to reorient you. You're, you're not understanding how things work with the Holy Spirit and with the one true God who isn't silent. He speaks all the time. And so he goes on in verse three. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will curse Jesus. Okay? So no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God is ever going to curse Jesus. They had people coming around telling them Jesus wasn't really God, um, trying to alter or shift the way they viewed Jesus. And so he's saying no one from the Spirit of God. So if they really have the Holy Spirit, they're not going to curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is God, right? The Son of God. No one can say that except by the Holy Spirit. So it's giving them some simple identifiers, how to tell when the person talking to them was really speaking for God. You and I struggle with the same thing. I talk to people all the time. How do I know that God's speaking to me? How do I decipher God's voice from maybe the devil's voice or from my own voice? How do I figure that out? Listen, um, as followers of Jesus, we become spiritual people and we've got to gain a spiritual awareness, spiritual knowledge, and we begin to interact at a spiritual level. And so this is his instruction to them. It's why he's given this to them. We could go into all different areas where we struggle to identify God's voice. But here's some clear, uh, simple principles, again, that we can put to play in our own lives too, that somebody's not gonna curse Jesus if they really are of God. And nobody's gonna say that Jesus is God, right? Unless they're really from, um, from the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, if you go and look, a lot of the false religions, cults, Groups that get off, this is one of the big areas. Always who Jesus is gets challenged. He's not really God. Well, he was a God. You know, they, they skew it off. So it really is a true principle um, that we can follow. Helps us identify if somebody's truthful or not. Now he goes on to say this, verse four. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, spiritual um, empowerments. Man, some versions say manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. Diversity, lots of different kinds of gifts, but they're coming from one spirit. They're coming from God himself. Verse five, there are different kinds of service, different ways in which people serve. Okay, there's diversity there, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a spiritual person. Spiritual. Can I tell you, this doesn't come naturally to us. We tend to be humanistic. We deal in a physical world. We live in a physical world. 
And the spiritual can seem kind of hocus pocus. It can seem, uh, you know, mystical and scary and uncertain. We don't naturally know what truth is inside of the spiritual realm. We don't know. Not on our own. And so we need special revelation, which is the word of God, to begin to teach us, instruct us. I can't tell you how many times I myself, other people I know who are trying to follow Jesus, have gotten off because of listening to the wrong voice, the wrong message. It is not from God. We can get off and go astray a lot that way. So there's a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual reality or realm that exists And we're participating with it, whether we know it or not. And so it's best, as followers of Jesus, who we claim to be spiritual people, we've trusted in Jesus. We we worship a God who is, he is spiritual and supernatural. He isn't, right? He's spirit. We need to have knowledge and awareness of the spiritual realm and of reality there and truth there. And so it's an area we need to grow in. We are um, products of the enlightenment, (laughs) And of Western thinking has gotten, it's very Greek influenced, right? Logic and reason and away from mysticism. Okay, yes, mysticism of itself is paganistic, heathenistic, satanic. But God is truth and light. And we need to have an awareness of that. So it's good to be reminded as Paul engages this, dealing with a group of people like us in our culture, don't have a lot of spiritual awareness. Don't deal in spiritual realities. We need to grow in it. We need knowledge of it. Because one of the things that happens, as I said, when we trust in Christ is the spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And we are to be in tune and in touch with his presence, know his voice, and know that he is working through us as we live this life. We need to be in touch with that. And so the Holy Spirit begins to manifest himself through us in the form of what this passage, what the Bible is calling spiritual gifts. And so we want to connect. We need to know. We need to understand. And so, um, and so this is the truth. Uh, the Spirit of God is at work in us. And you are gifted, or he's going to equip you, excuse me, he's going to equip you um, to participate in God's work. And so the next thing we see as we move through this chapter is that you... If you've trusted in Christ, you have been given a gift. Let's keep reading verse 7. A spiritual gift or a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, right, is given to some of us so we can help each Are you following along? Not some of us. Come on. Not some of us. Each of us. That's everybody. That's everybody. There's nobody sitting here that has put their trust in Christ, that has not been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. It's important. I know some people aren't sure about that. Um, Don't want to maybe acknowledge it or deal with it, but you have, if you've trusted in Christ, you've been given a gift. So this happened for everybody. Verse eight, to one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge Verse 9, the same spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one spirit gives the gift of healing. Verse 10, he gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages. While another person is given the ability to interpret 
what is being said. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. Where do they come from? Who decides what they are? It is the Holy Spirit. It's God in his sovereign plan, okay? He is the one who determines who gets what gifts. He's the one at doing it. He goes on to say this at the end. He alone decides which gift each person should have. All right, um, this topic, this chapter, um, is a little controversial. Some of you might know that, maybe you don't, but it is, down through the history of time, it's been very controversial. I think it's very interesting, I thought of this this week, that um, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter uh, dealing with this issue of spiritual gifts and who has what and how they're using them, that the reason he's addressing them, the reason he's writing this in part, is because they're having conflict related to this topic and issue, right? They're having conflict. And so isn't it interesting (laughs) that this is one of the key areas where there has been conflict for the church since the history, uh, since it began to today. It's an area of, it's a hot topic. It's a hot button. It creates conflict and fights and disagreements. Now, maybe, I don't know a lot, but I'm just guessing maybe it's because this is an important issue for God's people. And so the enemy gets in and tries to create division and conflict and disagreement so that we are distracted. There's opinions on the gifts, right? There's views of this. And uh, you might hear one pastor say, some of these gifts do not exist anymore. They're done, they're gone. They're only for the New Testament era. And you might hear another pastor saying, no, all of these gifts are still happening today and used and, and are to be used and are manifesting themselves in people. The Spirit is giving them. What I'd like to focus on this morning is not necessarily that part of the conversation. I'd like more to focus on the part of the conversation that says spiritual gifts are real and that you have one. I'm not the determiner of which gift you have. That's up to God, right? He's the one giving it. And so I would rather encourage you and educate you and help you go on a process of discovery and to begin to ask the question, if you haven't, how have, how have I been gifted? How is the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in my life? And so with that purpose in mind, not to cause conflict and disagreement, but to empower you, I'd like to go through this list of gifts briefly and give a brief description. It can help you begin to understand what spiritual gifts look like, because you need to know that. Again, we're not naturally spiritual people, and so we need to get educated. And I think that's the primary reason the list is in here, because these were gifts that were actively at work in the Corinthian church. And so this is how God, this is how the Holy Spirit was showing up in these people. First of all, the first gift listed is wisdom. Oh, by the way, before I start into the list, there's different lists in the Bible, and they are a little different. They vary. There's some things that kind of show up on every list, some of the gifts, and then there's some gifts that don't. So this isn't comprehensive, and that's the good news. If you Look at this and you begin to discover my gift doesn't show up here. It's not a comprehensive list, right? It's to begin to show us how to understand and discern and see how the Spirit of God works in us and works in people. And so first one on the list is wisdom. Um, Wisdom could be presented probably a number of different ways, but I think the best kind of simplest description, scripturally speaking, is that it is spiritual understanding related to the application of God's truth. 
spiritual understanding. Listen, we all know probably somebody that's wise, that if we're having trouble, we don't know what to do. We go to them and say, hey, I got a problem. What should I do? And they can give us wise counsel. But not everyone that's wise in human terms has spiritual wisdom, right? Spiritual wisdom are those people that you can go to with a problem and you think it's a problem with your spouse, (laughs) how they're treating you, how they're acting, how they're behaving, or a problem with your kids, getting them to obey or listen to you. You think a problem with your employer or there's a financial issue, right? And you give them an earthly problem that you have and they have the ability to take God's truth and spiritually give you wisdom as to how to handle the problem, how to address it. And at first, if you're not very spiritual in your thinking, you think to yourself, that's ridiculous. (laughs) My problem's over here and you're telling me to do this. That doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense because they have the spiritual gift of wisdom. They can give you truth from God and apply it to your situation. So it is a spiritual gift and it is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in them. The next gift listed is knowledge. Um, This would be special insight into a situation. Again, not probably known information. People that uh, can do this, if you think this gift is still active, people um, have knowledge of something about your situation or maybe the church is heading in a direction. They go, hey, we, we need to be aware of this. this. This will happen or could come up or this is a problem. And they're able to see it. And it's not an earthly answer. It's not just based on uh, their knowledge of things that happen in the world, but it is spiritual in nature and it comes from God. And so it's always related to spiritual things. The next one is faith. And again, faith is required for every believer. If you're a Christian, you have to have some faith because you have to put your trust and faith in Jesus. And yet this is different. This is a different level, a different kind of expression of faith that um, transcends just even the ability to believe in Jesus. These are, I think, oftentimes the people that seem to go through the craziest things. They're in the middle of uh, what would tear anybody else apart. And they're just sitting there going, yep, God's at work. And uh, they can see it. And they're not ruffled as much by the situation and the waves. But they see God. They're trusting him. And they walk through the difficulty, right, with peace, the thing we all want. And they have, they have confidence and trust. And we go, how in the world can you do that? And it's because I think oftentimes they have this spiritual gift of faith. It's exceptional trust in God. How about healing? Healing is the ability to restore health to the body or delay death. We see this in scripture a lot. Miracles. Many times miracles were associated with some kind of a radical um, physical healing, like, you know, the restoration of a limb. Jesus was involved in that. Um, making somebody who was blind from birth, able to see this kind of um, Uh, amazing restoration, right, of the physical body that oftentimes is associated with a miracle. Uh, Jesus turning a couple of loaves and fishes into enough to feed, you know, 10, 15,000 people, that that kind of thing. But also I think what could fit in here is is to cast out a demon, which I think um, definitely still see happening today. And I believe we see miracles too. But I know, again, I'm not trying to get controversial too much in this. Prophecy. Prophecy. So prophecy has a couple different meanings and it's a little bit, um, uh, maybe a broader uh, description or understanding of what it is. But um, in general, I think prophecy, especially as it's as best we can tell, um, as it's being described here, is to declare a message from God 
for his people, to declare a message from God for his people. But when I was younger, I learned prophecy. There's two kinds of prophecy, and maybe this will help you um, to remember what prophecy is, that it's um, either foretelling, which is to foretell the future, or it's forthtelling, which I know is a weird word, but it kind of rhymes, it goes together. Foretelling, forthtelling, which is to just proclaim the truth of God. And so um, that's prophecy. Discernment, special godly insight into a person's life or situation. Again, there's human discernment. There's people that have discernment. They just seem to see where something's going. They can predict where we're headed, what's gonna happen next in human terms. But this is a spiritual gift. And so this is spiritual insight into a person that that knowledge and insight's coming really from God. Um, tongues is the next one. Okay, so this is prob- maybe the most controversial, but this is a touchy one. What are tongues and what were they? And there's a lot of different discussion about it. Um, we see in the New Testament tongues, uh, kind of as it first shows up, is when the day of Pentecost uh, arrived and the Holy Spirit came and fell on the people and consumed them. And they had what appeared to be tongues of fire uh, over their heads and about 120 maybe of them that were in that upper room waiting. And so they're filled with the Spirit. Peter goes out and he begins to preach a message. And they were acting in such a way that people were accusing them of being drunk, right, in the morning. These guys are drunk. And so um, they were filled with the Spirit and their behavior gave that impression. But Peter said, no, we're not drunk. It's 10 in the morning. Come on, God's doing something here. And so he began to preach. And when he did, people from all over the world, as he spoke, probably Aramaic, as he spoke, they heard him in their own native language. So we know there was a guy from Ethiopia there, right? Ethiopian eunuch. We know there were some individuals there from all over the world and they heard him in their native language. It was a miracle. That was the first manifestation of tongues. And so we know that tongues can be a known language. But then in the, in the New Testament, and again, this is a little controversial, but, but there's an issue here at the church in Corinth and the churches, when tongues was used in the churches, they needed interpretation. And we're going to see later on in chapter 14 a little bit more about this as they uh, use this gift in worship, right? They're given some instructions on it. But, but the point is that um, it needed interpretation. And so in my mind, that means that perhaps it looked a little different. There was something different about it because obviously the first one didn't need interpretation. The point of its use was that everybody understood it. And in this case, in the churches, there needed to be interpretation. But anyway, that's that issue. Is it a known language or an unknown language here It's listed and translated in the NLT as an unknown language. And then there needed to be an interpretation of that. And so that's that ability, obviously, to interpret that unknown utterance into uh, the native language of the people that are in the church. And so here's a list of spiritual gifts. It's what they look like. It's the kind of gifts that the Holy Spirit begins to show and manifest when he manifests himself in the life of believers. Um, as I said before, my main point here is that you have a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit didn't quit doing this. Um, He hasn't stopped giving gifts. So you have a gift if you've trusted in him. You need to go on a process and a path of discovery. Because just because you have a gift doesn't mean you necessarily know completely how to use it or that you're maximizing the use of it. And it needs to be used, right, in the church. And so the first piece here is, well, the first piece of the Holy Spirit has gifted you. Second one, you have been given a gift, or the Holy Spirit's equipped you. He's given you a gift, and now, next, what's, what's expected? 
what flows from the, the point that you have been given a gift is that you're supposed to use it, okay? And so next we see that your participation is essential. Participation. Let's keep reading in verse 12. The human body, Paul says, has many parts. Here's an illustration of how this works. Human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Get a picture in your mind of your body, how it has different parts, but it's one body. This is what we need. This is visualizing how it works in the church with these spiritual gifts. And so Paul says it's the same with the body of Christ. He calls the church a body. So we understand this metaphor. Verse 13, some of us are Jews. Some are Gentiles. Some are slaves. Some are free. Some are men. Some are women. Some are rich. Some are poor. Some are country, some are city. Like we go into all kinds of ways in which we're diverse. And he's noting some of them for them. In this context, in our church, it's the same. There's diversity here. We have different backgrounds. We have different, um, um, uh, we have differences, right? He says, so we're diverse, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. Same God who has initiated all of us into his church. And we all share the same spirit. Goes on, yes, the body has many different parts. Not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? I've heard people say, well, I can't do ministry. I'm not a pastor. I can't speak very well. So I can't do that work. That's for people that have particular giftings. That's like saying to yourself that I shouldn't have different parts to my body. I should just have one in order to function, right? Or maybe just a few. So Paul's combating this idea that you're not the first person to think that. These early Christians were thinking that too. So, Just because you might think to yourself, I'm not part of the church or I can't help with this work or I can't be a part of what God's doing, that's not correct. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything, right? I can't remember, but I read a story or watched a movie somewhere where there was these characters that were just feet, it was like from the ankle down, right? It was just a foot. And they hop around, run into things. and Come on. But, that, but guys, this is what we do. This is what we do. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not, so I can't. And Paul's just combating that with a ridiculous idea that your body doesn't work that way and wouldn't. And so why do you think it would be that way in the church? We, we think this way um, and, and it needs to be corrected, Right? Our bodies have many, um, have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. So God is a part of determining who you are because he created you, what gifts you have because he's the one that gifts you. But as assuredly as you're here and as assuredly as your faith in Jesus has saved you, you have a gift that he's given you. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. We're all connected to each other just because we're different. We have different gifts, different parts, different ways in which we're to serve. We're we're still part of the same body, which is one. 
That's Jesus' body, the church. Verse 21, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. So here's the other thing that happens. Somebody's not like me. They're not doing what I do. They don't do it the way I do. And we have a tendency to say, my, you don't belong here. You don't fit here. Um, everybody needs to be like me. And so now he combats that problem of thinking. That, um, that uh, um, lie. So the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Maybe you have a part of your body that you don't see. It's inside of you. And you just assume everything's fine and it's great. And it's working great. And then it doesn't work. <laughs> it, it throws a wrench and it says, it decides to rebel. I'm not going to work. And then you realize how important it is, right? How much it hurts when it doesn't work and how painful and uncomfortable. I'm not speaking from experience, but maybe you've experienced that. So he's saying, look, it's the same way in our church. It's the same way with us as people. Sometimes the people that you think are the least necessary, least important in your human perspective, no, actually, they're more important. And so the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you, all of you together are Christ's body. And each of you, is a part of it. Um, you. Again, I'm not saying if you haven't trusted Christ, then yeah, you can opt out. But if you put your faith in him and if your salvation is found in him, then you're part of the church. You're part of his body and you have a part to play. You've been gifted not just to um, be an observer, but to participate, right? To participate to be a part of things, to find your way into a role to fill, um, a way to help. Your participation is necessary. Your gifting does not determine your value. Um, parts of the body, positions in the church that are up front, that get more recognition, do not have greater importance. It's not how it works. Value is not based on gifting. That's why he uses the description of the body to remind us that sometimes the parts we take for granted, we just think they're fine. When they don't work, everything shuts down. I went through a period of life where I got migraines. <clears throat> I got a migraine, everything's done, man. I'm doing nothing. I can't function, okay? Thank the Lord for Excedrin. I mean, come on. There's things that happen to us, right? So, so our church is the same way. We can't just discard anybody. We can't overlook anybody. We can't say they don't matter. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a role to fill. You are necessary. In order for the church to function and get done what needs to be done, which is God's work, okay? It's God's work. Then we got to participate. And we all got to participate. We all have to play a role. You are not unnecessary, unimportant. And as much as I love you, I'm your friend, I care about you, 
But I'm the kind of pastor that can't sit here and say, it's okay if you just come to church and sit and listen and go home. That's okay if that's all you ever do. I can't do that. I, I, I answer to God. <laughs> and so I have to say the hard thing, which is, no, you have a gift <laughs> and we need it. And so we're trying to build out a church and continue to grow with this culture of participation and involvement. And, uh, and it's difficult to do. It's not easy both ways. It's not easy to invite new people in and to encourage them and train them and help them get going and get started. And, and it's not easy for, for people to trust enough uh, to engage and to try. And so it's difficult all around, but that's what this message is to this church. And Paul, in the same way, didn't hold back. It's like, listen, guys, there's conflict occurring here because of this gifting, and that's because it's so important. Do you realize if you don't use the gift you have, you're not going to grow spiritually, and you're not going to participate in God's work, and it's one of the greatest reasons that you're here on this earth is to participate in God's work. And I watch a lot of Christians that don't, and my heart breaks for them because that is to realize what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of his church. And so many people are disillusioned with Christianity and their faith. And oftentimes it's because they're not stepping into those arenas where the fulfillment comes from, where the victory comes from. And that is when we step in and begin to participate. And it's not about what role you fill and it's not about what gift you have. And so Paul's trying to shift their attitude. They're fighting about it, their conflict. They want to all be the same kind of, I all want to be, we all want to be the teacher. We all want to be in that role because that looks cool and seems like everybody likes that, you know? And he's like, no, everybody's different. And you got to go with the role that you, you're meant to fill by God. He's the one in charge. And so don't struggle with that, embrace it. Embrace who you are, embrace who God's made you to be and how he's gifted you because it's important. And so he's trying to shift their mindset. Next, he moves to that final place. He talks about some leadership gifts that were given to the church, specifically to build up the church, and, uh, and apostles and prophets and teachers. And he goes through that list um, in this passage we just read. And that is specifically for the church, to build it up. And we can see again what the church probably looked like based on those gifts, what was happening there, and how God was growing the church. It was through the manifestation of those gifts. But then he shifts them. Because again, we're human beings and we get focused on uh, what we um, compare ourselves against each other and what we want to have and what we think is cool. <laughs> what we think must be awesome to have. And, and so he shifts them a little bit next in their hearts by saying, listen, we're not all the same and we don't all have the same gifts. And yet... Here's how you should think about it. How can I have the gift that's going to make the biggest impact, that's going to help the most? And so last thing he covers in this passage, he tells them, desire gifts that will help the most. They'll help the most. Verse 29, he says, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages. Of course not. Of course not. We're not going to all have the same gifts. It's not going to happen and it shouldn't happen. It would work against the church working. He goes on, so you should earnestly desire. And so our desire plays into this. Okay. It does. It's a mystery. God is the one who decides, but, but we have the ability to desire gifts. So 
So as you desire, as you want to be gifted, right? He says you should earnestly desire, not the gifts you think are cool, but the most helpful gifts, the most helpful. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And next week we do 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. And everybody loves the love chapter. You'll love it. Don't miss it. But uh, that's where he's going. But here he's like, listen, your attitude, your perspective, listen, you're wanting what other people have. You're wanting what you think is cool. No, want what's going to make the biggest impact. It's going to make the biggest difference. It's going to help the most. And so he's shifting off our human tendency to think about this in human terms, to thinking about it in a way that is helpful, that is going to ensure that the church is successful. You know, when I started mowing the lawn, again, my dad gave me some pointers and he set me loose. He didn't micromanage me. I'm sure when I first started, it looked horrible. And remember, my dad cared about how it looked. But I don't remember him yelling at me. I don't remember him getting on me about how I was doing it wrong. He probably coached me a little bit. But knowing my dad, he probably just kind of let me go. And uh, yeah, when I first started, I'm sure it looked not good. The good news is the grass grows back. Got to do it again next week, right? And so I got another chance, another chance, another chance. I kept working at it. And pretty soon I got a job mowing the neighbor's lawn, you know? So it gave me a little more practice. I'm not sure why I wanted to learn how to mow so bad, but I did. I want to get good at it. I was working at it. Consistently over time, um, I improved. Now, when I was about 40, let's see, 40 something, two, three, four, my parents, my mom and dad, they came to live with us in Colorado where we lived. And at that point, I'd worked long enough, figured some things out, that I had a lawn that looked the way my dad would have wanted the lawn to look. And I mowed it in a way that made us both proud. And so he would compliment me on my lawn. And so, um, so that was good. I wanted to arrive at that place. It bothered me. Right now I have no lawn and it bothers me every day that I walk home. It drives me nuts. But I will get it. It will happen. But here's the thing. He cared a lot about it. But that didn't stop him from letting me participate. Your heavenly father is the same way. And I'm gonna tell you, this church is gonna be the same way. We're not gonna have a bunch of professionals that are doing everything. We're not gonna have just the, just the people that are really good and flashy and know how to do it, doing everything. It's not gonna happen. I, I'm, I am opposed to that because I don't see that in the Bible. I see that in the Bible, everyone has a place. Everyone has a role. Everyone has something to do. And so I'm committed to trying to create more seats Right? More places for people to get involved. Now, right now in our country, participation in churches is down. Um, I don't pay attention to what's going on in the country all the time, but every once in a while I hear, and I hear pastors say, it's down. Volunteering, serving, participation, it's down. And I'm like, well, maybe a little bit here at Mitchell Berean. We still have an awful lot of people participating. I mean, our VBS this year, I think, had as many or more people helping than we've ever had. So that's encouraging but still, there's a tendency. We all kind of under a cloud. What's going to happen next? We've gone through some trauma. We've got a little PTSD. We're not sure we're going to make it. Yeah, it looks okay now, but Pastor, but what about next month? Something's going to go wrong. Something's going to blow up. I just want to call us back to live by faith. We're a spiritual group of people. We don't pay attention primarily to the world we live in. We pay attention to the God that we're following. And you here, we here, are a part of something that's miraculous. The church is not just an organization. It's not just a movement, right? It's the work of God. And I think, if I remember right, 
the one who started the church, which is Jesus, God's son, who now is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the father with all power and authority. He said, I'm going to start my church and a pandemic will stop it. I don't think he said that. A downturn in the economy will stop it. I don't think he said that. If I remember right, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're a part of the church, you're part of something that can't be stopped. I think the only way it stops is if we lose faith, we lose sight of God. When I came back to Nebraska, to the Midwest, I thought to myself, the middle of the country has got to show the rest of the country how to do it as they've lost their way. I still believe that's true. I know we don't have it all together either, but I think we're in a better position to move forward by faith. We trust God. We're gonna build the church. We're gonna participate in the church. We're gonna be obedient to what God says to do because we live by faith. We're trusting in a God who we can't see, but we know exists because we see him at work in us and in our world. And so I wanna call you to that. Don't hold back. Don't live out of fear and apprehension, uncertainty, but step forward boldly. Trust God, get involved, get engaged, participate in the work of God. Because as the church gets stronger, then more people are gonna come to Christ and we're gonna accomplish the mission that we're called to do. God, thanks for your calling on our lives. Thank you for calling each one of us to participate in your work. And it's not easy, it's awkward. It doesn't come naturally to us, but God, you have patience with us. You allow us to keep trying. And let us uh, encourage us to be patient with each other and to encourage each other to get, continue to grow in this way and to participate and to be a part of God's work to the point where we are a church filled with people who just can't help ourselves but talk about Jesus and encourage people towards Jesus and live our lives for Jesus so that we really can accomplish the mission you've called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.